Well, it is, uh, it is a joy and a pleasure to be here before you today. I've got my pulpit moved to another side, so we're changing things up a little bit. Also, I was told that the uh, screen uh, last hour was just at random times shooting up, so we may have a little bit of excitement this morning. Uh, we are uh, diving into the beginning of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. Now, Steve did a bit of an introduction last time on the book of Proverbs, uh, but today we are actually looking at Proverbs chapter 1 itself, Solomon's introduction itself. Now, when you approach a subject for the first time, it's important to learn the first principles of that subject. And nobody jumps into calculus without having had algebra first. Nobody begins algebra without having had general math. And you, don't, you can't do math unless you've learned how to count. And when you study a topic like systematic theology, for example, the first thing you usually deal with is called the prolegomena. Now, that's just a $5 word. That means the stuff you say first. But the prolegomena for any field of study cover the questions that the field considers, the methods that are used, and what the goals of that field are. And today, as we enter the new year and we learn how to write 2023 20, on everything, we're looking at Proverbs chapter 1. Now, in college, freshman-level courses are the introductory courses. They're often titled by the number 101. So it seems that a fitting title for Solomon's introduction to Proverbs would be Wisdom 101. This is how we get our foot in the door. Now, last year, Steve covered the main issues of who wrote the book of Proverbs. That was a whole year ago. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. But as verse 1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. We know that the author is Solomon. Now, there's some question about whether uh, some portions were written later on by other authors, but in general, the authorial intent is communicated through uh, primarily Solomon. And Steve also explained why we should even care that Solomon, the guy who rebelled against God from the highest level of authority in the kingdom, why we should care that he wrote some stuff? Why he left behind some writings? Why should that matter to us? Well, the answer, of course is that the faithful immediately recognize that this is the voice of God in writing. And Paul agreed with this when he said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And Paul did not say all, ex all Scripture except the bits that Solomon wrote, but he said all Scripture. Peter did not create an exception clause for Solomon when he said that men being brought along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God in 2 Peter 1.21. Whatever faults were Solomon's were not transferred to these writings. And we can have confidence in what he authored, that it is the word of God to us. Now in his opening chapter to the book of Proverbs, Solomon begins by laying the foundation. He begins with the fundamental elements of pursuing wisdom. And so we see throughout chapter 1, in Wisdom 101, we see the goal of Proverbs uh, that is a God-fearing life. 
in verses 2 to 7. And then we will see the admonition to reject evildoers in verses 8 to 19. And then the call of lady wisdom in verses 20 to 33. And so we begin with the goal of Proverbs, which is a God-fearing life in verses 2 to 7. Now, a proverb, and Steve touched on this last time, but a proverb is just a wise saying. It's like a simile or a parable. In this section, we see the pluriform goal of Proverbs. Solomon doesn't just list one simple sentence and say, this is the theme, this is the goal of Proverbs. Rather, he develops this, this goal uh, throughout the course of these six verses, verses 2 to 7. And within this one pluriform goal of aspiring to a God-fearing life, there are three basic benefits. The first benefit that we see in verses 2 to 3 is maturity in virtue. This is one of the benefits of the Proverbs, is maturity in virtue. Now, in verses 2 and 3, there's a decided emphasis on the virtue or the morality aspect of wisdom. These verses read, To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. And so this first phrase in verse 2 is to know wisdom. And when you consider wisdom throughout the Bible, you see that uh, one of the earliest examples was in Egypt. Wise men were associated with magic and sorcery. And we see this in Genesis 41 verse 8 and Exodus 7, 11. They were called the wise men of Pharaoh. And perhaps you can hear a similar association in the English word wizard. Wizards were originally considered men of wisdom or something like that. The word developed over time to have that more magical sense. But the initial idea is wisdom. It can also refer to skill in technical matters. We see this in Exodus where God endows men with specific abilities that contribute to the the building of the tabernacle. Wisdom is also experience or shrewdness. Uh, In the the life of Solomon himself, in 1 Kings chapter 3, 28, it's discernment that leads to justice when he tries a case. And it's associated also with his understanding and his breadth of mind in 1 Kings 5, verse 9. And when you look at many of these examples of godly men who were endowed with wisdom, wisdom had a specifically divine origin. And that's pretty fascinating, because as we move to the New Testament, Paul makes this remarkable statement that in Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in Colossians 2.3. When we know Christ, we have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon also says that Proverbs are for, un- for knowing instruction. Instruction is also thought of as discipline or chastening. Now, this is the kind of instruction that you give to a child when they do something wrong. Many of you have experienced that as either children or parents. But it's also, it usually involves pain of some kind. This is the kind of instruction We see this in Deuteronomy 11, verse 2. But the fact that you can know this kind of instruction through wise sayings 
suggests that you don't have to be the one to personally experience this chastening. You can learn from someone else's example. You can learn this instruction from a proverb. You know, any of you who grew up with siblings close to your own age, you get this. Because you looked at their example when they got punished, and you learned, I'm not going to do that. You didn't have to experience that same discipline sometimes. Maybe, maybe sometimes you did. I certainly did. But I also learned from my sister's example not to do certain things and what the repercussions of doing those things were. Similarly, in Proverbs, you can learn without having to go through all the mess of living through some of these problems and learning the hard way, as it were. You can benefit from Proverbs in that way. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. He also says that Proverbs are for discerning the sayings of understanding. Now, this word discern and this word understanding, they have the same Hebrew root. Now, in English, when we translate, we usually like to mix up the words a little bit. Hebrew likes to repeat itself. And so, literally, it would be to discern the sayings of discernment or to understand the sayings of understanding. It's primarily cognitive action, but it implies some kind of outworking of what's going on in your mind. Whatever you think you understand is not complete until it produces fruit in your life. That's the idea. We read in Exodus 31.3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. We see these ideas associated together leading to work, carrying out a task. In Hebrew, thinking, whatever you call wisdom, uh, whatever you called wisdom, knowledge, and understanding had to be connected with the real world in some way. Now, this isn't to say that there are never beneficial uses to coming up with hypothetical scenarios. Uh, there's never thinking there's never a, a benefit of thinking of probable scenarios. Uh, there certainly can be. But the thought of the Bible is very much connected to the tangible world, the real world, the world that we live and experience. And so what kind of tasks, and what kind of outworking does Solomon have in mind? Well, he says in the next verse, to receive instruction in wise behavior. Instruction, the same word that we saw in verse 2. To receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity. Israel's high calling was to be known through wisdom and understanding, through living out the divinely given law, and putting into action the transcendent justice that characterized the law. People would know when Israel practiced the law that this law came from God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Moses says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there? It has a God so near to it 
as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Solomon, as he introduces Proverbs, is merely echoing the law of God when he gives this preliminary purpose of Proverbs. And if you do these things and excel in the virtue of the law, this is what you can expect. But maturity in virtue, this righteousness, this equity, is not the only thing. It's the proper groundwork for the next emphasis. You should desire maturity in virtue, but you should also seek maturity in understanding. This is the second, uh, the second benefit. In this section, there's a decided emphasis on the, the cognitive aspect, the, the part that goes on in your mind. Verses 4 to 6 read, To give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Proverbs are to give prudence to the naive. Prudence is just another form of the word for cunning that we see in Genesis 3.1. That's how the Bible describes the serpent that tempted Eve as cunning. But in general, it just refers to a sharpness of mind or a shrewdness. If you are naive, if you are ignorant, Proverbs can give you shrewdness. They can give you discernment. They can give you sharpness of mind. When it speaks of the naive, it's speaking of somebody who's young, who's inexperienced, who's ignorant. Now, any moral determination of, of what's going on with someone who's naive is based on the context. There's nothing inherent in the word itself that implies that this is, this is a sinful thing. But someone in the state of ignorance like a child often has foolishness bound up in their heart. Uh, Solomon says later, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And so this is not a, a, a sort of scenario, this is not a condition that you want to live in. If you read Proverbs and you recognize, I am naive, you need to learn from the Proverbs and overcome that naivete, that simpleness, that ignorance. He says to the youth, Proverbs can... Be to the youth knowledge and discretion. And discretion is a bit misleading because we hear discretion and we think of you know, somebody who's reserved in their speech, who knows when not to say something, usually, is what we think of. Idea in that word, and this is true of English as well, but it properly refers to being of sound judgment. Somebody can withhold words because they know how to judge that this is not the right time to talk about something like this. And so that's the primary idea. A youth can learn knowledge and sound judgment. But it involves uh, you know, this intentionality, you know, exercising good judgment with respect to what's known. And then Solomon interjects. He interrupts his flow of thought in verse 5 and says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Uh, wisdom and understanding were 
part of what was to define Israel as they obeyed the law. But Solomon says that this is what wisdom and understanding look like. Wisdom is characterized by hearing, listening, paying attention in a way that results in learning. You're not just listening to the words and letting them go out the, 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 the other ear. Things aren't going in one ear and going out the other ear. Wisdom is hearing that brings about learning. And understanding is characterized by acquiring wise counsel. You listen to the people that are around you. You receive advice. You receive counsel. And you don't ignore it. The opposite of this would be a scoffer, which we'll see later. And then he returns to his flow of thought and says, to understand a proverb and a figure. Now, that's interesting. Proverbs help you understand proverbs. Now, a figure, I I like what the Legacy Standard Bible says here for a figure. It's better thought of as an enigma or some cryptic saying. It's related to the idea of an interpreter. And so this is an interpretation of some kind. It's something that you, it's a statement that has to be interpreted. That's the idea. And Proverbs can help you to understand these kinds of sayings. Proverbs help you understand the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, when you think of a riddle, you probably aren't thinking of what Solomon was thinking about. And when I think of a riddle, I'm just going to confess right now, I am a nerd. When I think of a riddle, my mind immediately goes to The Hobbit. And... You know, when Gollum and Bilbo are having the game of riddles, see, you know, whether Bilbo's going to get eaten, you know, that's what comes to my mind when I think of riddles. Sorry. But this is not what Solomon is talking about. Now, this word can refer to riddle in that sense. It can be a cryptic saying or a riddle, like we see in Judges when Samson is giving the riddle to the Philistines. That's that word. But... More often, it refers to something that's more like an allegory or a parable. A really clear example of this, if you want to look at it later, is Ezekiel 17. Uh, God gives uh, an allegory or or a parable. Uh, That's the way to think about this. Proverbs can give you understanding that that helps you to to be able to interpret these figurative uh, sorts of stories or figurative allegories. But maturity in virtue, uh, as we've seen, lays the groundwork for attaining maturity and understanding. These are things that we should aspire to. These are things we should desire. Maturity in virtue, maturity in understanding. If we recognize we're lacking in virtue, if we recognize that we're lacking in uh, understanding, we should pursue the Proverbs of Solomon as the solution to this. It's a prime way of overcoming those sins in our lives. But there's an even more fundamental truth behind all of Proverbs, the entire book, a more basic element at the bottom of all true knowledge, and this is knowing the fear of Yahweh. Knowing the fear of Yahweh, verse 7. He says, the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Throughout the Old Testament, 
The fear of God is considered a restraining influence on human morality. If you fear God, you restrain yourself from sin. You don't harm others intentionally. And if you do not fear God, conversely, you act as though your evil deeds will meet no consequences. You pretend as though God does not exist. The Bible says the fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. There's a permanence to it. There's a purity to it. Another psalm says the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Not only is it the beginning of knowledge, but it's also the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have a full-orbed, well-rounded thought life that's scriptural and biblical and reflects the character of God, it begins with a fear of God. We also see in Deuteronomy 6.13 that the fear of Yahweh is central to right worship. If you want to worship God the way he deserves to be worshipped, it begins with fearing God. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge the way the voice of Yahweh is the beginning of all creation. There is no knowledge and understanding that does not begin with the fear of Yahweh. No true knowledge, no true understanding. And remember that knowledge and understanding are not just categories that belong only to the mind. It's not just information. It's information that works. It's information that does something in your life. Then he says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the complete opposite. This is somebody who rejects this knowledge. Isaiah pairs foolishness with stupidity in Isaiah 19.11. And uncleanness in Isaiah 35 verse 8. Psalm 107 associates foolishness with rebellion and iniquity. In verse 17, it's often associated with stupidity, but not necessarily a lack of intelligence. Because Jeremiah 4.22 speaks of the fool that can be both stupid and yet skilled with wisdom. By showing contempt for wisdom and instruction, fools show contempt for the law. And by implication, the one who gave the law. Not Moses. I mean, they certainly show contempt for Moses. But more importantly, they show contempt for God himself. Fools lack a fear of Yahweh. They lack a fear of God. Now, as you move through the book of Proverbs, these same goals are ever-present. They permeate the entire thing. And this same foundational truth that all knowledge is grounded upon a fear of Yahweh, undergirds everything. Everything. There is not one aspect of the book of Proverbs that is not reflective in some way of these truths, and particularly this truth in verse 7. Solomon then moves to the second element of the Proverbs, the, found, the fundamental element, and that is the admonition to reject evildoers in verses 8 to 19. The admonition to reject evildoers. Now this admonition itself contains two mandates. The first mandate is that you should hold to faithful instruction. Verses 8 to 9. Hold to faithful instruction. 
Solomon says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now Solomon, when he begins verse 8, he echoes the opening word of the Shema. Everybody know what the Shema is? Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He echoes that word. And he says, hear your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now this idea of forsaking, you know, he says do not forsake. This term is used for leaving the ground uncultivated during the year of rest. You neglect the ground. You don't do anything with it. You don't touch it. He's saying don't forsake your mother's teaching in that way. In other places, it speaks of God, God's people abandoning or forsaking him. Now, in the case of forsaking God, it entails pursuing something other than God and devoting yourself to it. The people of Israel, time and time again, pursued false gods. They forsook their God. As we think about it in the case of wisdom, it means not only neglecting wisdom, but pursuing something else entirely. And if something is not wisdom, it's non-wisdom. It's foolishness. And this word for teaching. So Solomon began with the first word of the Shema here, but he ends with this word for teaching, which is identical to uh, the term for the first five books of the Bible. It's Torah, the law, the Pentateuch. Do not neglect your mother's teaching. Now, it can refer to, more generally, uh, formal instruction or didactic material. And that is probably what Solomon specifically means. But the entirety of the law is at least implied in what Solomon is saying in verse 8. This law is what is forming the father's instruction and the mother's teaching. And he says, hear this instruction. Don't forsake this teaching. And he says, he goes on to describe this instruction and teaching. He says, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now, a wreath in the ancient culture could have been either, you know, made from an actual vine of some kind or branches, but over time, uh, people may started to make it out of gold and silver. In either case, a wreath that went on the head was a sign of victory over enemies, power and life, prestige and high social status. And to say that it's a graceful wreath or a wreath of grace implies that this sort of instruction, this sort of teaching will gain you charm and favor. Things will go well with you if you hold to this instruction and wisdom. Ornaments are really necklaces. It's something worn on the neck that's visible, but it also symbolizes what a person is recognized for. Uh, and necklaces in Solomon's day were not these dainty little things that our wives wear nowadays that you can you know, barely even see from a distance, but they were like these huge, ostentatious, uh, gold and silver kinds of things, colorful. They, they were basically bling. Solomon's saying, 
this instruction, this teaching will be bling on your neck. If you don't know what bling is, I, I respect you. <laughs> if you get that it's huge and ostentatious jewelry, you're on the right track. But Solomon uh, prefaces this entire admonition by affirming the value of the instruction and training that a young man receives from his father and mother. His admonition to reject evildoers begins with a reminder that we have to hold firm to what God has revealed in his word and be faithful to those who have committed that to us by teaching it to us. You honor your father and mother. You honor those who are in authority over you by heeding the right words that they have taught you. The king calls his son to hold fast to the instruction he has received from his father and mother. No doubt the same instruction that the Israelites were commanded to give in the Shema. But this is the warning side of what Solomon is admonishing his son. And this is the warning. Refuse violent enticements. Verses 10 to 19. Refuse violent enticements. He says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Now, when we approach this and we say sinner, we see the word sinners, we think, well, everyone's a sinner. And that's true. We're all sinners. But Solomon is not referring to the fact that all of us are sinners. He's referring specifically to those who are characterized, who are marked out a life that is saturated with sin. He says, my son, if sinners entice you. Now, this word entice, when a man invites you into his home, he usually extends one arm or both arms in some way and says, welcome. It's a gesture of welcome. It's an invitation to enter into his home. What these people are doing, what these sinners are doing is inviting someone in, not into their home, but into an idea into an, or into an action inviting someone into a partnership. And he says, do not consent. This word consent is to want something or to be willing, often to the extent of giving in or being persuaded. He says, don't even want it. Don't even will it. Don't desire at all what they're offering, what they're inviting you into. And what do these sorts of men say? If they say, beginning in verse 11, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive like Sheol, even as those who go down to the pit. We will find all kinds of precious wealth. We will fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. He says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. They lie in wait. 
That's what they propose to do, is to lie in wait for blood. Now, lying in wait was typical of criminal activity. If you look throughout the Bible, this is the sort of language for what criminals are doing. They're lying in wait. He uses a synonym and says, let us ambush. Ambush is the idea of concealing yourself with malintent. The innocent are not the same as the naive. These are people that are clear. They are free of guilt, free of wrongdoing in a legal sense. These are people who have done absolutely no wrong against those who seek to harm. They want to do this. They want to lie in wait for them. They want to ambush them without cause. It emphasizes that these people have done nothing. They're just going about their business. They're like the some, they're like the, the man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He was just traveling down the road, and all of a sudden, some bandits come. These are the bandits. They gathered together, and these are the sorts of things they would have been saying. There's nothing on the part of the innocent that would justify any hostile action from others. They say, let us swallow them up like Sheol, even whole, as those who go down to the pit. Shell. It swallows physical life, which is how these sinful men propose to treat the innocent. They want to destroy their life. Now, Sheol in the Old Testament is a word that refers to the grave, and it focuses on the final destination of the body. And we typically focus on the soul, and we don't pay much attention to what's going on with the body. But in biblical thought, the body is highly important. We are, we are both body and soul. We are composites. Our body is a very important part of who we are. And the Bible recognizes that. It matters what happens to your body. Now, the word pit is, a, is just another synonym for Sheol in this case. But it's a hole from which no one can escape without aid. This is a hole that you get in and you're trapped unless somebody comes along and helps you out. This is the kind of hole that Joseph was in when his brothers conspired against him. He couldn't get out on his own. When Jeremiah was cast into a pit, this is the kind of thing that he was in. He couldn't get out until the Ethiopian helped him. This is the manner in which they want to consume and devour the innocent. They say, we will find all kinds of precious wealth. Think about the game. Think about what we'll get we will fill our houses with spoil, the things that we've taken from others by force. Now, this is the allure of wealth and easy riches, easy gain that disregards the cost. That's who these people are. And finally, they say, throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse the original communists. The idea of throwing in your lot is not so much throwing dice to determine something. That's usually what throwing a lot means, casting lots, is to make a determination. But this is not what it refers to here. It's not taking a chance. It's not gambling, but taking part, having a portion in what they're doing. 
having a portion with these men, agreeing to share resources and rewards. And a purse is just a wallet. It's where you keep your money. It's not a man purse. It's the original money bag. But they would all have one common fund. The idea that they're cooperating, working together. That's their offer. And Solomon says, my son. This may sound appealing. This may sound really good to you if you are foolish and ignorant. Do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. He says it clearly. Do not walk in the way with them. Don't do the things that they're doing. Keep your feet from their path. A, a path was a footpath. It was a path that is worn into the ground through frequent walking. You walk the same path over and over again. Figuratively, it's a path of conduct. And when my father-in-law was a kid, he lived right next door to his aunt's house. And his aunt and uncle, they were never able to have kids. And so he was like a, their child. He, it, for him, it was like having a second, uh, a second family, a second mother and father. And so sometimes he would eat dinner at his house, and then he'd walk over and have dinner again. But he had a path that he walked as a kid. And so even, even whenever uh, we were there, after he was grown, that path was still there. It was still worn out where he had walked over and over and over again, back and forth, back and forth. That's the idea of a path, of a footpath. And Solomon says, keep your feet out of that path. It's easy to get into that path. This is a path that has avoided all the little obstacles. It's found the firm ground. It knows which way to walk to avoid certain misfortunes. But keep your feet out of that rut. Don't go there. Intentionally apply restraint over your conduct. You don't just accidentally avoid a path like that. You have to be intentional about avoiding it. And what's the reason why you avoid that? Well, he says in verse 16, for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Now, he doesn't come right out and say it, but you can see that it's implied. These are evil men. If they have no thought for the innocent, what are they going to do to you when it's convenient? You should be concerned about a man who's that willing to shed blood, who's that willing to hasten to evil. They lack restraint. Their bloodlust is fierce. They shed blood. They hasten to it. Shed is literally pour out. They pour out blood. It's volumes. And it's violent. And then he says, Indeed, it is useless to spread the baited net in the sight of any bird. Now, I've never done this. I've never tried to catch a bird. I don't know why you would want to. But he says it's useless to spread the net inside of any bird. If a bird is sitting there watching you, you're not going to achieve anything by putting your net out right in front of it. It's smart enough that it's going to see what's going on, and it's going to just wander off or fly away. 
It'll probably just be scared whenever you start to spread out the net. You know, this is the idea of like whenever you shake a sheet to put it over your bed. That's spreading the sheet. You're spreading the net. It's going to create commotion. They're going to run away. This is exercise in futility. But there's an analogy here. He says, they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. He says, they lurk in the shadows and it ends in their own death. They conceal themselves and it results in that they take their own lives. Their way leads to destruction. And he says, so are the ways, in verse 19, so are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Violence ends in violence. These are their ways. It's their tendencies. It's where their behavior leads. When they gain by violence, literally unjustly gain, unjust gain. It's another one of those repetitions of the idea. Profit that's obtained through wickedness, where they don't care about the immorality of their methods that they use. It results in their own destruction. And so Solomon issues this dire warning against following evildoers and joining in with them. He's used very vivid language. Now, realistically, we're reading this and we're thinking, I'm probably never going to meet anybody exactly like that. Now, there are some parts of the United States where, you know, kids are getting enticed into joining a gang. And for them, this is exactly what they're facing. But for us, we face very different temptations. We face people that are trying to involve us in shady business. They want to entice us to join with them into some kind of uh, way of exploiting others. Now, they may not be, you know, sticking a knife in anybody, but they are causing harm. We need to think about the people that we're associating with, the people that we're partnering with. Are you going to go into business with somebody who's an unbeliever? You can never truly trust them as long as they're apart from Christ. And so you have to be careful about the people that you are cooperating with, going in joint ventures with, In this chapter, we've seen that the goal of Proverbs, a God-fearing life, and the admonition to reject these violent enticements, these evildoers. But then Solomon uses an allegory in verses 20 to 33 to show the necessity of heeding wisdom. And this is the call of Lady Wisdom in verses 20 to 33. The call of Lady Wisdom. Now, I refer to this as an allegory, um, not because I just love throwing the word allegory out there, um, but because the central figure is a fictional character, and it's a personification of wisdom. A personification is whenever you've got this you know, idea or this attribute, and you speak of it, and you treat it as though it were a person in literature. And, the and this is chiefly uh, representational in nature. So for all those reasons, I think it's good to call it an allegory. You could just as easily call it a parable or to use Solomon's term, a riddle. 
But as I said, if you call this a riddle, people are going to be confused uh, because they generally don't think of this when they think of riddles. But the call of Lady Wisdom unfolds in three mandates. The first mandate is this. Avail yourself of wisdom's clear voice in verses 20 to 21. Avail yourself of wisdom's clear voice. Verse 20 says, Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. Now, the opening of this allegory in these verses points to the free availability and the value of wisdom. Now, wisdom, uh, the term here is actually a bit interesting. It's the same word that's used for wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs, but it's plural. It's a plural term, and, but all the verbs that are used with it and all the pronouns are singular. And the idea is, is to express the greatness and the majesty of wisdom. Now, the reason why we say lady wisdom, and I'm not the only one who has done this, we say lady wisdom because in Hebrew, wisdom is feminine. It's a feminine word. And Solomon speaks of wisdom as a woman, and Miss Wisdom just doesn't have the same ring to it. And Mrs. doesn't work because she's not married. So that's out. So Lady Wisdom. Or we can just say Wisdom. But it says in verse 20 that she shouts in the street. The idea is that she gives a ringing shout. This is not the kind of shout where somebody's just screaming until their voice is hoarse. This is a sonorant shout. A cry of jubilee, a cry of rejoicing, a cry that has a, an almost musical quality to it. It's an inviting and a welcoming cry. If you were to hear a cry like this, you would say, what is that? She cries, she shouts in the street. If you think about an ancient street, they weren't like our streets today. Our streets today are made for, are they made for people or automobiles? They're made for cars and trucks. Streets in that day were made for people, foot traffic. And so the fact that wisdom is crying in the street, that she's shouting in the street, she's shouting to people. These streets are occupied. They're busy. They're originally where people would have been doing business, doing transactions, visiting with each other, bickering, changing money, all kinds of things. And it says she lifts her voice, literally gives her voice. Her voice itself is a gift. At the head of the noisy streets, verse 21, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates of the city, she utters her sayings. The idea is that wisdom is calling out above the noise that you would associate with a street, with a busy street. And the gate is the place of, of business in the city, the place of transaction, social interaction. It's where you would hear news from other cities. People would judge cases there. Uh, when Solomon laid the groundwork for his insurrection, he intercepted people at the gate because it was an important place. In these two verses, we see, wisdom's, we see that wisdom's message is clear. It's obvious. And it's available for everyone. There is absolutely no excuse for ignoring wisdom. 
Which brings us to the second mandate of Lady Wisdom. And this is pay attention to wisdom's sound reproof in verses 22 to 32. Pay attention to wisdom's sound reproof. She says, how long, O naive ones, that's the ignorant, will you love being simple-minded or will you love being ignorant? And scoffers delight themselves in how long? And fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. So I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you then they will call on me but I will not answer they will seek me diligently but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord they would not accept my counsel they spurned all my reproof so they shall eat of the fruits of their own way and be satiated with their own devices for the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. How long, O oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And you scoffers delight in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. In this verse, verse 22, Solomon introduces two important words that we see throughout the book of Proverbs over and over again, scoffer and fool. Now, the word fool here is different from the word that we see in verse 7 of this same chapter. Scoffers appear, as I said, several times throughout the book of Proverbs. I want to read a few examples where Solomon uses this word to give you an idea of what a scoffer really is. Proverbs 21, 24, he says, Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names. Who acts with insolent pride. Proverbs 22.10, Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. Proverbs 24.9, The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. This is a man who's characterized by pride. He's characterized by stirring up strife and contention. He's characterized by speaking dishonorably. One commentator said, when they hear advice, they criticize and ridicule the one who gives them the advice. Another describes scoffers as the most hardened apostates. That's the scoffer. They ridicule. They're full of criticism. They don't heed advice. They reject it, and they scoff at it. A fool is a favorite term used by Solomon. It only occurs outside of Solomon's writings three times. Elsewhere, Solomon characterizes fools as lacking self-control, stirring up strife with their speech, practicing wickedness that is destructive toward those around them, acting dishonorably, loving what is evil, refusing instruction, speaking volumes of dribble. 
creating obstacles for the progress of others in wisdom. They're described as hypocritical and self-conceited. And here, Solomon says fools hate knowledge. They have no love for knowledge. Instead, they have a very clear and obvious hatred for knowledge. Well, wisdom ends her rhetorical questions and enjoins her hearers. She says, turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. She says, repentance is available. If you're ignorant, if you're a scoffer, if you're a fool, repentance is available. She calls them to turn. It's the same word that's used to refer to repentance elsewhere. Turn to my reproof, my correction. Wisdom is ready to pour out her spirit upon those who will receive it. Wisdom is free and available. She says, verse 24, Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. They refused her. Literally, like Pharaoh choosing to let, refusing to let the people of Israel go. He would not let them go. He refused. She stretched out her hand. It's another gesture of welcoming. It's an offering of companionship, an offer of help. And no one paid attention. She was offering her, her hand, and no one paid attention. She says, and you neglected my counsel and did, want, did not want my reproof. This idea of neglecting is not just ignoring something, but it's letting something slip through your fingers. What happens when you give a kid a balloon? They let it go. It slips through their fingers. These people are having a lackadaisical attitude that may cause some amount of grief, but ultimately the counsel is not seriously heeded because at, at an ultimate level, these people are different. If they don't listen to wisdom, it's because they are indifferent. They don't really care. But she says, because of all these things, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock or ridicule when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Dread, calamity, storm, whirlwind. These are violent, terrifying disasters, raging storms when distress and anguish come upon you. Distress refers to the idea of being in a narrow or a tight place. If you're claustrophobic, you get this. You understand this concept. Now, this is what you would experience if you woke up to find yourself in a tiny coffin buried alive. This is the distress that you would be experiencing. When distress and anguish come upon you. Anguish is a similar idea, but it refers more to the idea of being squeezed and pressed. And again, I'm a nerd, so the only example I could come up with is from Star Wars. The movie. The, the best one. When they go to rescue Princess Leia on the Death Star, and they end up in the garbage compactor, and they're waiting for R2-D2 to save them. And they're being squeezed by the garbage compactor. I've only got one person who knows what I'm talking about. 
but they're being squeezed. They're feeling that kind of pressure, that anguish. That's the idea. When these things come upon you, what do people do when they begin to reap the harvest of iniquity and taste the bitterness of their deeds? She says in verse 28, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Wisdom will be cut off from them. It will be too late. And why? What's the rationale? What's the reason? The cause? Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The grounds of Lady, De- Lady Wisdom's deafness toward fools in distress is that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. It's not as those are two different things either. Hating knowledge is not choosing the fear of the Lord. They're waiting until dread and calamity come to look for, for wisdom. They wait until everything goes wrong before they start looking for wisdom. If you're not prepared beforehand, there will be no refuge when disaster strikes. Wisdom will be of no use to you if you do not seek it out beforehand and, pre- and perhaps even present the disaster entirely. If you live in an area that's prone to tornadoes and you don't have any kind of shelter, what are you going to do when the tornado comes? You'll have no refuge. You'll have no options. Without the fear of Yahweh, no amount of naturally inferred wisdom is finally or ultimately sufficient. The fear of Yahweh is essential to true wisdom. Now, you can learn a lot from observing the world. You can infer a lot of things from life experience. And God has made it that way. But if you want true knowledge and true wisdom, if you want to be able to understand everything in life properly, it only comes through fearing Yahweh, through fearing God. You will lack, without the fear of God, you will lack the moral categories necessary to understand and know the world around you. Rejecting the wisdom that is freely available through natural and special revelation is no different than scoffing at God and hating knowledge itself. Now, we're all familiar with uh, scientists and scholars who promote their godless theories Anytime we see these things, we immediately recognize that these things are logically flawed. They're clearly corrupt interpretations of the data, and they clearly contradict what God has revealed to men in his word and through his works. But these men, when they promote these kinds of falsehoods, they reveal that they have no love of knowledge. They've entered into the academy pretending that they have this thirst for understanding, this thirst for knowledge, but they reveal at times like this, that this, instead, they have a hatred of knowledge. They want no truth. She says, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. They had no desire, no longing for wisdom's counsel. They despised and abhorred all of wisdom's correction. She says, so they shall and be satisfied with their own devices. 
their actions will have consequences, and they will taste their bitter fruits. She says, for the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Over and over again, Solomon is pointing out, if you don't heed wisdom, if you pursue non-wisdom, if you pursue evil doing and foolishness, the end result is death and destruction. Waywardness is just turning away. It's disloyalty. It's faithlessness and complacency is the quiet calm that breeds indifference. It's one of the symptoms of Solomon, uh, not Solomon's, Sodom's own wickedness. They were complacent, as Ezekiel describes it. The final end of those who reject wisdom and pursue their own follies is death and destruction. That alone, that alone is enough to compel anyone who has a desire for true knowledge anyone who fears Yahweh, to pursue more wisdom. You know, we hear all these things and we're like, yeah, I want to know Proverbs a little bit better. I want to be a little more wise. I want to remove those ignorant places out of, my, out of my thinking. And that's the idea. That's the goal. But there's a third mandate given by Lady Wisdom, and it is embrace wisdom's peaceful security. Verse 33 but he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. And what a sharp contrast from the fate of fools. What a sharp contrast. Now, this is a promise, to be sure, but it's also an implicit mandate to listen to wisdom. If everything that wisdom has said up to this point has not persuaded you, to heed and to listen to her, then this promise is a final mandate. If you would have this ease and security, if you would be at ease from the dread of evil, then you will listen to Lady Wisdom. You will embrace what she has to say and therefore embrace the peaceful security that she offers. And you will not obtain it through any other means apart from fearing Yahweh and living a life that's characterized by the wisdom that properly flows from fearing him. But moreover, there is no true fear of Yahweh outside of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not just tacking this on. I'm not just coming up with this. Because in Colossians 2, 2 verses 2 to 3, Paul speaks of attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To fear Yahweh, you must heed what he has revealed. And he has revealed the good news of forgiveness of sins in Christ for those who trust in him and put no confidence in the deeds of the flesh. All the wise living in the world apart from God, will do you no good if you trust in your own works for salvation. So if you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not put your hope in the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge, then I urge you to do so before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you
the source of all true wisdom and knowledge, your word. Lord, we thank you that we can grow in sanctification, that we can grow in maturity and understanding through studying your word. Father, I pray that as we continue to study Proverbs, knowing this foundation that you have showed us in this first chapter, that we would be receptive to the correction that the book of Proverbs offers, that would be receptive to the wisdom that comes through it. And ultimately, Father, I pray that if anyone here does not know Christ, that you would change his heart, that your spirit would convert them through your word. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.